Welcome, everybody. Good to be with you on this Palm Sunday. Uh, a couple quick things. Uh, we are doing a Good Friday service. We just announced this uh, at 6 o'clock right here at 15 Hayes Street in Providence. This will be a short service uh, where we'll walk through um, the journey right up into the cross and celebrate the love that gets put on display for us on the cross. So 6 o'clock, you can register online. This is a limited seating uh, for this service especially. And then we added a 12 p.m. Easter service. So we have one at 9, one at 10.30 that are both at capacity. So we'll, again, need you to register ahead of time. So we just opened up at 12 p.m. You can also do that at sanctuaryri.org or text that number. Uh, and then um, there is a service at 7.30, a, day, a, a sort of sunrise, almost sunrise service at 7.30 a.m. And all the information there, again, is also on the website. And that will be outside. So the sunrise service will be out side. There's also going to be an Easter egg hunt on the state house lawn. So parents will just stay with their kids. So everyone will make sure like they're a good distance apart and all of that. We're going to spread the eggs way out. Um, there'll be some pizza at the egg hunt. Even if you're not coming to one of the indoor services, you're not quite there yet, or you'd be watching online and want to come to the egg hunt, please do that. Again, all the information is on the website uh, or on that number that you can text. So it is, again, Palm Sunday, and we are wrapping up our series on the wilderness. And uh, we have been in Deuteronomy mostly. Today we're going to be in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. And I want to just give a shout out to uh, my boy Colin Majak, who um, some of the learnings here on trust uh, I got from him that are just were really helpful for me this week. So we mentioned uh, this a few weeks back. In fact, I think this story came up, has come up twice now. Are these stories about Moses when he's in the wilderness with this wandering tribe when he brings water to them and brings water up out of a rock or more uh, accurately God through Moses brings water to these people. So the people of Israel are in the desert. They just set up camp at Rephidim. And there's a problem. There is no water in Rephidim. A large group of people in the desert in a pre-plumbing world. So the people naturally start to complain. Moses, their lead, to, the, to Moses, their leader, they say, give us some water to drink. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? just so our animals, like, is it just so our animals could die of thirst and things start to get ugly very, very quickly? So Moses, with a mix of seeming, uh, seemingly being both stressed and angry, cries out to God for what to do. And we read in Exodus 17, verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God tells Moses to take his staff and go over to this large rock and hit it. And then water will come out so everyone can drink. And... The water comes out. End of story. Now, 
The next passage, the next story, is just like it, but with some key differences. In Numbers 20, the story begins very similarly. The people are still wandering in the desert. They come to a place with no water. They complain to Moses again, this time adding an extra note about how great the food was and how great the fruit was back in Egypt. And from there, Moses and Aaron go to the tabernacle, fall before God, and the story picks up in Numbers chapter 20, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock. Notice that. Don't hit it. Don't strike it. Talk to it. Tell the rock. Before their eyes, do this before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So similar plan. But this time, Moses is to simply speak to the rock. No mention of hitting it. Uh, And then in verse 10, he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring your water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Now notice, again, instead of speaking to the rock like God told him to, Moses hit the rock twice. Water comes out. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So if you're following this series so far, This is a huge deal. Moses has given the greater part of his life to the deliverance of God's people and leading them toward the promised land. He's been God's like right hand man. After all of this, God says to him, yeah, Moses, you won't be leading the people in. They will go into the promised land. You won't be going with them because of this. You won't be there to see it. So imagine the frustration. Imagine the grief. Imagine the confusion. Even if this is the first time you've come to the story, you're probably feeling those things for Moses. Why did this matter? Why did this little detail or seemingly little detail matter so much to God? Why this severe response? At first, I wonder if it's uh, the contempt Moses has towards the people. Right? He says, like, listen here, you rebels. Like, you can feel his anger and you can feel his judgment towards them. And maybe that's part of it. But it doesn't seem like the whole picture. And maybe it's, it's how presumptuous Moses is. Like, he takes credit. Uh, he says in one place, quote, must we bring you water out of this rock? Like, must we bring you water out of this rock? As if he's the one doing it. This is arrogance at best and a God complex at worst. Literally. I think that gets actually closer to the problem, but the heart of the problem lies in the action itself. When God says, speak to the rock, Moses struck it, not once, but twice. I'm realizing as I'm preaching here the irony of last week, I had someone build a whole sukkah to preach in for a prop and this week I couldn't bring just like a staff and a rock to hit. Anyway, where, where God, God, is, God um, 
in this moment is, is telling Moses to use his words. And Moses instead uses his own force. Remember God's words, because you did not trust. Because you did not trust in me. In other words, when God invited Moses to trust, Moses exerted power and control. And therein lies the problem. And I wanted to land Lent here because this, right, has been a familiar thread throughout all of the texts and passages and themes that we've looked at over the last six weeks. Moses traded trust for control. And in doing this, he forfeited what God desired for him. Now we have to have some empathy for Moses. When I think about the first story, like it's a huge step of faith to believe that if you strike a rock with a stick, water will come out. That's just not normal. That's not how things work. And yet Moses does do it. And so in the second story, God asks for more trust than that. It's as if God is saying, okay, Moses, you saw what I could do when you exerted some effort. When you took a swing at the rock and I brought out water, this time I want you to do something even more daring. Instead of hitting the rock, just speak to it. Use only your words. Bring your staff with you. But instead of hitting the rock, getting the same results as last time, I want you to trust me enough to just speak. And of course, the tragedy is that Moses doesn't. I imagine that nagging doubt of, like, this is crazy. Like, water isn't just going to come out of the rock because I give it a nice talk. I'm not sure people are going to respond well to me talking to a rock. Like, like, it, surely, it, it takes a little muscle. I can do something about this. I can take this into my own hands. And it is that temptation to take things into our own hands that so often chokes out a life of trust. Control and trust are at odds with one another. This has been the lesson for me this Lent. Trust is the only currency in which God seems to really act and work. If something is, 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 is going to activate or, or, or involve God, right? If something, if something is truly from God, some activity is truly from God, it's so often gentle and subtle. It's not cunning. God is always just wooing us, inviting our trust. We don't have to make it happen. And so for me, this story just, I think it shows that, that the work of God can't be forced and muscled or controlled, at least not in the truest sense. He might meet us in that space once upon a time, like, like that first story. Or perhaps like more tragically, we might even try to take things in our own hands and find we actually do get the outcome that we predicted. We might be faced with a fear or shortage of some sort of lack. And like Moses, we might exert control over the situation and the waters might come out of the rock, so to speak. But in the end, we very likely will miss out on what we actually want. 
the life with God and from God that we actually crave gets lost. Or we get what we want and not actually what God wanted. Or we don't get the joy of participating with God and in his will. That's because God does not work by force. If something has to be forced, it's not from God. God does not work by control. If something needs to be controlled, it is likely not from God. There's no doors to be shoved open, no paths to force our way through, and no rocks to strike. This God works in our lives through quiet and gentle trust. Again, control and trust are different forms of currency, and trust is the currency in which God actually works. And so when faced with any difficulty, the temptation for us will always be to seize control. If we can just get this person to do this thing or just get, you know, make this happen or shed ourselves in the right light, then it will work out. Then we will be safe. And if we don't do these things, if we don't throw our effort behind it, if I don't work hard to bend every possible factor to my favor, my life won't work out. I think we fear that if we do not control our lives, we'll end up thirsty. If we don't look for ourselves, look out for ourselves, like who, who will? It's this fear that animates so much of our need for control. Now today's Palm Sunday, a day where we remember Jesus's like wild entry into Jerusalem. The day where Jesus contrasts his kingdom and Rome's. If you don't know the story, you can find it right here. The text is here on the screen. We have Jesus entering from one end of Jerusalem while uh, Romans, like the Roman Empire's representative Pontius Pilate, who's full of all this imperial power, enters from the other side of the city during the turbulent time of Passover. And he's there to try to subdue all of these crowds. Pilate is coming to keep the peace, to keep order, to control the appearance of insurrection. And he travels, right? We know this story well, with troops and with flags and with weapons on a war horse. He comes to control the situation, to suppress a movement. That's how Rome made peace. That's what empires do. And that's what movements that don't look like Jesus do. Any kind of movement. Even a movement that, that may mirror parts of the way of Jesus, right? But if they're not truly Christian, they will coerce and they will shame and they will power up and they will control. And this is kind of what Jesus' followers wanted from him. They wanted him to lead an insurrection, to overthrow Rome and the religious elite. But Jesus makes his entrance riding, right, what? On a humble donkey, a symbol of the poor, and of the powerless, no armor, just traveling robes. He's not leading a great army, just a ragged group of followers. He doesn't come to impose peace, but to woo people to it. Not the kind of peace of control, but right, the peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem gives us an example of who we are called to be as followers. People surrendered to the will of God. On Palm Sunday, we are watching Jesus um, as he does so often, release control and trust his father's way. Trust that his father's way is the best way. 
It's the way of the donkey as we head into Holy Week. It's the way where we see the betrayal of his friend and the mocking of the soldiers and the torture of the whip and his execution on a cross. And this way of surrender, this way of relinquishment is what leads to resurrection. Control. Control is mostly an illusion, right? Based on fear. We think we can create certain outcomes by controlling the components, eliminating the possibility of pain or eliminating the possibility of disappointment. We think we can, can control what other people think about us. <laughs> we think if things are done our way, everything will be okay, but we're afraid of failing, afraid of being hurt. That's really what's going on. Afraid of things not turning out the way we'd plan. So we just try to force the outcomes that we think we want. Jesus, right? Jesus on this Palm Sunday, we see him choosing the way, not of control, but the way of obedience. He was ready to take up his cross, to die. So into Jerusalem and to the cross he went, full of what? Full of trust. See, a, a turn toward control is always a turn away from trust. And thus, a turn away from God and what God is doing in our lives. We forfeit, I forfeit, his vision for my life when I become preoccupied with taking matters into my own hands. Even in doing things that are like for God, I think we run this risk of missing God entirely if we move forward without trust. And so for us, the invitation of God is simply to trust, to look back on the kindness that he's shown, right? Just like last week, to remember the ways that he's been faithful, the ways that he's provided for us. And based on that, to trust, to relinquish control and striving, to actually hold out the belief that God is at work on our behalf that he will act, that he is for us, that we won't end up thirsty. The promised land is only entered through trust. The way of resurrection is only entered through trust. And so with that, I want to invite you um, to, 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 to pray with me. And in a posture of prayer, I want to ask Jesus three simple questions. And if you want to um, actually write these out, you know, run and grab a journal or something, but if you're able, you know, put both feet on the ground, calm your heart for a moment, your spirit for a moment, and in your mind, ask Jesus, ask Jesus this first, Jesus, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? Another way to ask would be, where am I afraid that I'll be thirsty? Where am I afraid that I'll be lacking? Name those things. God can handle those things.
Question number two. Ask Jesus, what am I trying to force or take control of? What factors in my life or parts of my life am I trying to bend into the right direction so it will work out for me? Maybe another way to ask is, what rocks am I trying to hit? Just ask him to show you that. Finally, just a simple ask. What would it look like for me to trust you? God, what would it look like for me to trust you? Let's take one more moment. And so pray this prayer with me, if you would. Jesus, we confess our fear, our need for control. So often, we try to manipulate every aspect of our lives, believing that no one is really looking out for us. Would you have mercy on our fears? Free us from the need to control. And Lord, would you open us up piece by piece to trust you with the whole of our lives. Pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.